You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have Dr. Stuart Kwan. He's a clinical chief and medical director, Division of Sleep and Circadian Disorders, uh, Brigham Women's Hospital. So, uh, Stuart or Dr. Kwan, how are you doing today? I'm fine. How are you? Good. I'm wide awake. My uh, my chronotype has allowed me to be awake to talk to you, so I'm glad to be here just to make a bad joke. Sounds good. Yeah. So, tell me about uh, your work uh, in the realm of sleep. What what attracted you to it in the first place, and then uh, what specifically are you working on? Well, I'm, I was attracted to, to doing work on sleep because sleep affects everybody. We sleep for one-third of our lives. It's the one activity we do the most of, and it actually is the one thing that we do that if we don't do it good or well or long enough, it can have significant repercussions on our health and also others and also our quality of life. So what area of sleep uh, are you focusing on? What fascinates you about it? Well, we do a lot of work right now on trying to promote good sleep health. So one of our initiatives currently is to interact with various institutions and organizations to give presentations on good sleep health. And then at the same time, then at the end of the presentation, we administer a screening questionnaire to people to see if actually they have a problem with their sleep. And if they do, to help them get in touch with a healthcare provider so that they can have it further evaluated. We call this program the Sleep Matters Initiative. Okay. And so what, uh, are, um, what are some of the most common problems you people have with sleep? Well, the most common problem is actually sleep deficiency. You know that uh, 30% of Americans will report that they sleep less than six hours per night, which when you consider that, it in comparison to what's currently recommended, which is at least seven hours per night, that's a large number of people who aren't getting enough sleep. In addition, almost 70% of Americans will say that they don't get enough sleep at night. So that's a lot of people that are affected by sleep deficiency. We consider an epidemic, really. If you think about it, you know, that's there are upwards of 350 million people in the United States. And if 70% of them say they're not getting enough sleep, that's a lot of people who uh, are affected. And And the difference between um, six hours and seven hours or eight hours um, uh, medically 
physiologically, do you see there's a huge difference just in the loss of an hour or two of sleep? Oh, well, yes. I mean, the studies show that people who get less than six hours of sleep are, are at risk for greater amounts of heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, stroke. So, so this can have a significant impact on people's lives. Not to mention the fact that it's a, a problem with their quality of life and also to the health and safety of others. For example, if you go for 24 hours straight without sleeping, like you stay up for 24 straight hours, your impairment in performance is the same as the blood alcohol level of 0.1%. Now, what oh, wow. is 0.1% is legally drunk. So essentially, you don't, no one should get out and under a week, go out and drive a car with that blood alcohol level greater than 0.1%. And if they do, and if they are pulled over by the police, they get arrested for drunk driving. Hmm. However, I mean, most people won't think twice about, about getting behind a wheel if they've been up for a long period of time and they're sleepy to go drive. And somehow people have yeah, it. What if, uh, you know, what yeah, if you people, were a surgeon or, a, you know, a healthcare professional or a bus driver or even just driving your, you know, your family around, you could get into an accident and kill them, you know, or you're a surgeon, you could hurt somebody or a healthcare provider, you could misdiagnose. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you know, many of the, the public safety accidents that you've read about uh, in the past few years, many of them have been really related to the operator of the, the truck or the bus or the train not, not getting enough sleep or having a sleep disorder that caused them to be sleepy. So all of those were preventable accidents, and some of them resulted in people being killed. So it's an you important. That, um, you said like seventy percent of Americans report um, themselves as not getting enough sleep, not getting sufficient sleep. Yeah. So I guess the only way they would know that is to, you know, since they're not coming from labs, uh, being diagnosed as such, is that they feel, you know, probably tired, foggy, not well, not rested. You know, a whole host of I feel this or that in order for them to report that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you think about it. So if you have to get up to go to work in the morning and you need an alarm clock to wake up, that means that you basically are sleep deprived for that night. I mean, you may be able to function, but you're not going to be quite at the level you would have been if you were you had slept an adequate amount of time because the brain is able to compensate some. But, you know, there there is a period of time when it starts to catch up with you. So when you do these um, these assessments and people tell you, oh, I'm not sleeping enough, you know, what kind of misconceptions or urban myths do you have to battle in order to get them uh, to agree to be treated or, you know, to seek help or do a sleep study or talk to a sleep professional? Well, I think that the greatest myth is that uh, you can fight your way past this whole thing, that if you feel tired and sleepy, you know, it's just a matter I drink a cup, cup, of, cup, couple of cups of coffee and I'm fine, that... Uh, you know, I'll be okay today. Um, I'll make it through to the weekend, then I can then I can sleep and catch up. Uh, so, what most people don't realize that kind of catches their attention is that yet not getting enough sleep can impact their health. All almost everybody realizes if they don't sleep enough, they don't feel good. I mean, you feel tired, sleepy, all those things you just mentioned. So they realize that that can be a problem with not getting enough sleep because everybody is 
you know, stayed up all night and they don't feel so great the next day. So they can translate that. What they don't realize is that not getting enough sleep can shorten their life. And having to have oh, a, when you say shorten, uh, shorten health span or lifespan or both. Yeah. Or how much? Shorten their lifespan. You know, it's difficult. Oh, are there to any say. estimates on the amount of the amount of shortening? Well, that's kind of hard to 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 know. It's it's kind of varies according to the varies according to the study that that you read. Um, in fact, I mean, it's most of the time the studies aren't framed that way. They look at the <clears throat> what usually happens is you survey a group of individuals and you figure out and you assess how much sleep they're getting and then you look at see how what percentage of people are alive who are slept six hours, five hours, seven hours, and that sort of thing. So it's it's the studies really haven't been done where you followed people for basically a lifespan to figure out how many uh, you know what the life shortening is. And when kind people of a, report that they're um they're not sleeping well, do they tell you it's a certain number of nights per week, or is it just every night they're having a problem? I mean you know, how do you characterize the well, lack of sleep? Well, you ask them basically kind of on a regular basis how much sleep they're getting. In, in some studies, people actually wear a, like an actigraphic type of device where they where it's kind of as like a wristwatch and measures motion. And from measuring motion, you can infer when a person's awake and asleep. So you can get a, a more accurate measurement of, of perhaps how much a person sleeps. Like a lot of the Fitbits and Jawbones and those things that are out there, they use they have accelerometers that act as these devices to determine when a person's awake and asleep. So it's the same sort of principle. How most, good are those devices compared to doing a sleep study? I mean, I know you can't do a sleep study every night of your life, but how good are they? So in determining when a person's awake and asleep, just whether you're awake and asleep, not you know necessarily trying to assess how what the quality of your sleep is, they're relatively accurate. Um, but a lot of the devices purport to say, oh, you're, you got so much deep sleep, you got so much light sleep, that sort of thing. Most of those devices, it's, uh, they're not really well validated against a real sleep study. So, so if a person has one, I would say if it, you know, if it tells you you only got seven hours of sleep last night, it's relatively accurate in that. But if it says you got X percent deep sleep, X percent light sleep, uh, I wouldn't put necessarily much stock in, in those numbers. And when the people come to you for help, what what are some of the first things you'll go over with them and evaluate and then tell them or suggest to do? Well, I try to find out exactly what their sleep pattern is. And uh, <clears throat> then I look at the factors that may be you know, inhibiting them get, getting good quality sleep. Most people actually don't come to the sleep clinic because they say, I don't sleep. I'm only sleeping six hours per night. Most of the people come to the sleep clinic because actually they feel that they're too sleepy. They're, they, mean, they, don't, they don't come or they do come because they're too sleepy. They come because they're too sleepy, but they don't. Oh, they have, I guess what you'd call like excessive daytime sleepiness. Is that what it is? Yeah. That's why, that's where that's 90% of people come to sleep clinic because they have some variation of being excessively sleepy during the day. Now, some of that is related be to the fact that they don't sleep enough at night. So in those individuals, the solution is pretty simple. You need to, they need to revise their lifestyle a little bit so that they, so that they try to get enough time in bed so they can sleep enough. Okay. Other people, 
other other of these folks, they may actually have a real sleep disorder like sleep apnea or narcolepsy, right. something like that. Now, those people actually well, need a sleep study. Well, when people, when you first interact with people, do they resist you? Do they say, ah, I'm, I'm just tired or I'm fine? Or do they, they say, help me, I need help, and they're willing to listen to what you have to say? So there's a difference between a person coming into sleep clinic and a person, we're making a general presentation to the audience. In sleep clinic, these people have made an appointment because they think there's something wrong with them. <laughs> so, so it's actually pretty easy to, to say, hey, you know, you need to do something about your life or we need to do additional testing or that sort of thing. When you're giving a presentation to a general audience, most of, most of these people are, come because they're interested in learning more about sleep. And for the most part, people go away with saying, hey, you've given me new information. I didn't realize it. This, how sleep was important in their life. They're actually quite interested in, in usually the information that's presented. Now, whether they do anything with the information, that's difficult to say. Hmm. Do, you, do you feel or do you get from people the sense that the advice you give or, uh, you know, how people figure, you know, interpret the advice is like, oh, this is obvious or this is common sense. You know, how could you not know that sleep's important or is it not like that at all? I don't think that's it's that at all. I think that uh, people, when you present them the information, they say, yes, uh, you know, I now I know why sleep's important, that they don't discount it. What has happened, I think, in society is that people have just become, people have discounted the importance of sleep uh, kind of as a societal thing because employers reward productivity. So if you, for example, are working in a company and the boss comes by and says, I need a report by tomorrow type of thing. And it's five o'clock that day. And, you know, to if you wanted to advance in the company, it'd be pretty, a general response would be right away. I'll work tonight on it. You might, they might, person might work till 3 a.m. on the thing be and turn it in, right? You know, yeah. not realizing that they were sleep deprived, that they're making themselves sleep deprived rather than, Saying you know you know it'd be better if I could get a better report out to you if I got a little sleep and worked on it the next day. Mm. What, what do you think? Um, what do you, why do you think people sleep less than uh, six hours a night or six hours a night or less? Is it because their chronotype butts up against having to get up early for work, or is there another reason? Like you know, life is just so busy that they don't go to bed when they should and they stay up too late. Well, it's the latter, really. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some people who basically are night owl type people who stay up late naturally because their chronotype is such. And then when they have a difficulty getting up in the getting up in the morning. But for most people, I mean, society has become a 24 hour day, right? Mm. You know, I work in a hospital. Hospitals are 24 hour business, so to speak. The, the yeah. supermarket down the street is open 24 hours. So are a lot of drugstores. Um, you know, the airlines. I mean, they 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 fly all night. I mean, you know this. So it turns out that over 20% of people are shift workers. So they're working these odd shifts. Hmm. And if and if you look around and if you go out at midnight in any big city, you're from Chicago, right? This is from Chicago. You got your. I'm talking to you from Chicago. Yeah. It, right. Yeah. You go out. That you go down uh, the magnificent mile at 2 a.m. in the morning. There's a lot of lights on. 
because you know there there's stuff happening and mm. that results in people doing things at night and they they basically are compressing the day i mean so what so what's a typical interaction you know let's say i come to see you i say doc i'm tired every day i drink coffee or energy drinks in the morning i'm just tired and you say hey how much do you sleep and i say ah, about five six hours a night you know is, is that a typical conversation and if so what would you say from there you know what's a typical conversation looks like the back and forth of it so i would say it would appear that the reason why you're tired and stuff during the daytime is you're not getting enough sleep. And I would say then that it, it appears that some of you have some bad sleep habits and you need to set aside a greater amount of time in order to get an adequate amount of sleep. The person would say, well, how much is an adequate amount? I would say, well, we recommend at least seven hours, but individual needs vary. And the person might say, well, how can I determine that? And I would say, what you need to do is go on a two-week vacation, go someplace where you're not constrained by your job or the need to do anything so that you go to bed when your body says it's time to go to sleep and you feel sleepy, and then you wake up without the aid of your cell phone, alarm clock, or whatever, and you do that for a few days, and then you've actually found out how much your natural sleep needs are. I would also say that tell the person that there are a number of bad sleep habits depending on what they're doing, such as if they're drinking, for example, at night, if they're drinking coffee close to bedtime, they, they're using their cell phones or their tablet close to bedtime. There are some what we call sleep stealers that need to be eliminated as well. So do you have a worksheet where you ask them like a prescribed set of questions to determine what they're doing to, you know, ruin their night's sleep? Well, uh, there are some people who probably use a worksheet, but uh, basically mine's in my head. Okay, okay. I don't know if you have like a checklist of ever-growing reasons why you know people mess their sleep up. But uh, okay, what about uh, folks that say, well, you know what, I, I sleep in on the weekends. I I sleep like ten hours each day in the weekend. You know, how come I'm still sleepy during the week? How about that? Well, a lot of people actually do that. So if a person sleeps longer on weekends than they do during the weekday, they they obviously are telling me that they're not getting enough sleep on weekdays. And so the typical story would be, yeah, they're only sleeping about six hours on weekdays. They use an alarm clock to wake up. And then on weekends, they'll sleep until 10 or something like that. Yeah. It, it turns out that, um, you know, regular, we're learning more that regularity in your sleep patterns are almost as important as important to your health as sleep duration. And so, mm-hmm. while you know, that may, you may, you know, live like that, it may not necessarily be, be the best thing overall. Well, what if I say to you, Doc, I'm busy. I got a wife and kids and I got work and I, I don't think I can get seven or eight hours a night. I could, you know, I could squeeze in five or six. What do I do then? Well, life is, is a set of choices. And I, quite frankly, unfortunately, in our society, there are people that need to work two jobs because, you know, their their life is such that one job they can't make enough money to support themselves or their family or whatever. And I'm totally sympathetic to that. And there is no solution to that other than changing society somehow for those, for those people. And, you know, that's an unfortunate situation. Just like, you know, there's hunger in our world. There's people who, you know, through no fault of their own or are, are not doing well, but yeah. for many, for many people, they've made choices. Um, 
and if they examine their life, perhaps that they can they should they can decide whether they wish to sleep as long as they know the consequences. That's their their choice. I mean, there's a lot of people when, for example, in on the east and west coast, for example, some people like to watch the Late Show with uh, Colbert, for example, and so that comes on at about 11:30 on the west coast and the and the east coast. For Chicago and the Midwest and the mountain time zones, it's it's 10:30, one hour earlier. Um, I've done research to show that people on the east coast and the west coast they they actually sleep less than people in the the Midwest and the mountain time zones. And I think it's just because of the TV schedule. So, but if so, if you choose to watch the the Late Show or any other TV show late at night, you've made a conscious choice that you didn't have to do that. You could have chose to go to sleep. And today, for many people, they actually don't even need to make that choice because they can set their their VCR or their their DVR to record the show and they can watch it some other time. Right. Yeah. So they don't even need to make that choice. But you make choices to to for certain activities. And well, how um, what about the time you do have? I mean, do you suggest taking a nap? During the day, if the person can do that, does that help? You know, yeah. what about uh, when they're sleeping, you know, do you ask them about disruptions during sleep and maybe if they can get a solid six instead of, you know, a broken six, that'll that'll get them over the hump? Well, there's no question that fragmented sleep, for whatever reason, if you live next to a train station or something like that, you're not going to, or an airport, you're not going to sleep as well as the person who lives out in the country without any sound or extraneous sound around. So, um, so fragmented sleep versus solid sleep is no matter what the duration is, is always, you know, you want solid sleep over fragmented sleep. The, you know, I, all I can say is that, uh, you should try to get as much sleep as you can. All right. So what's, um, so what, what's a typical interaction again with patients? Like, you know, how are you able to help them? Are you able to convince them of the importance of getting more sleep and so they do and they're happy from there or what what are typical outcomes well yeah i mean a typical outcome if they believe what you're saying they will try to alter their lifestyle so they get more sleep and then they will be happier I, having said that most patients come to sleep clinic clinic where because they're excessively sleepy and they usually have a sleep disorder so that's an entirely different mm. kettle of fish where we actually do tests and stuff like that, a sleep study to actually evaluate why their their sleep is there's something wrong with their sleep. And for those individuals, it depends on what their problem is, and they may get various treatments. You asked about so naps. How long a, yeah, naps. Yeah. So so naps. Uh, we use uh, generally if you're nap if you have the need to nap, that generally means that you haven't got good sleep the, the night before or for a long time before that. And there's nothing wrong with taking naps, but you have to realize that if you're one of those people who has trouble sleeping at night because you have insomnia, taking a nap during the daytime is not going to help your sleep at night. But we we tell people who are shift workers, for example, who have because they're sleeping against their clock when they should they're trying to be awake when they should be asleep, that taking a nap before they report to work is sometimes a useful tool. Or being able, if their employer permits them to take a nap during their shift, can be useful as well to maintain alertness. Okay. So you see naps as a viable way. 
if someone says I just literally can't sleep more than six hours a night because of circumstances, but I can take a nap, you know, once a day. Um, would that be okay? That that could work. Okay. And then for naps, any wisdom around them? How long? What kind of circumstances? You know, what can you do to make sure the nap, uh, you know, works versus is, is not a waste? Well, it kind of depends on whether uh, they're taking a nap and they need to be immediately alert after they wake up. So if they're like taking a, if they're in a employed situation where they're allowed to take a brief nap, but then they have to wake up and actually work, especially if they're in a situation where they have to be alert because their job requires alertness, like they're driving a tractor or something that they're a public safety issue, then you don't want to take a real long nap, you know, not more than 15 or 20 minutes, because you'll drop off into deep sleep and it's harder to wake up from that. And you might have this thing called sleep inertia, a greater amount of that, which is basically a, a situation where you don't really wake up immediately. When a person goes to sleep, they don't go from zero to 100 miles an hour immediately. It will take a little revving up of the engine. And if you drop off into a deep sleep, you that it's harder to get that going. So you can get some refreshing sleep with a short amount of time. But if you take a longer amount of sleep, yes, you'll get refreshed, but it'll be harder to kind of get going immediately thereafter. Yeah, I've woken up from naps where I'm like in a in a stupor and I'm it's like impossible to wake up for sometimes even an hour. So yeah, I tend well, not to nap because I'm like, oh, you know. That's sleep inertia. Mm. Exactly. <laughs> I felt it, yeah. yeah. So right. if you were in a job, a public safety type of job and you you wouldn't want to be driving a bus, for example, right after your nap. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Well, a big question I have about naps is, you know, like you said, you don't want to sleep for more than 15 or 20 minutes. But, you know, the times I've laid down to take a nap, I think, you know, how long do I set the alarm for? What if it takes me 30 minutes to fall asleep? Should I just give up? You know, what if it takes me 15 minutes? You know, how do I know how long to set the nap for? Well, again, it depends on your circumstances. There's nothing wrong with taking a longer nap if you don't have to be immediately alert thereafter. And right. if, you take, if it takes you 30 minutes or an hour to, to you lay down to take a nap and it takes you 30 minutes or 60 minutes to fall asleep, why did you need to take a nap initially anyway? I don't know. You know, sleep is very psychological. There's been times where, you know, I lay there and I couldn't sleep and I had to tell myself, you know, look, you've fallen asleep for 40, some, 40 plus years. Why would you not fall asleep now? You know, because you, you want to sleep, but you can't sleep, but you want to sleep, but you can't sleep. So sometimes so, it's a, it's like a psych, you know, you psych yourself out, you know. Well, there is a psychological component to that. You're right. But we just, we tell yeah. people basically in general that you shouldn't spend time laying in bed trying to sleep. So if you can't fall asleep right away, you should probably not be trying to sleep in your bed because that just promotes mm-hmm. uh, a self-defeating behavior on the part of people. You know, we, when we have treat people with insomnia, a lot of times they'll say, well, I went to bed at 9 a.m., 9 p.m., and they'll say, and I'll say, well, why were you sleepy then? They said, no. Then, then I say, why did you get in the bed? And he said, well, because it was 9 o'clock. I'm supposed to get in the bed at 9 o'clock. Well, that's all nice, but if you're not, if they're having insomnia and they're not able to fall asleep at 9 o'clock and they just lay in bed for two hours waiting for themselves, waiting for themselves to fall asleep, what good has that done? They're just laying in bed awake, 
they should be out of bed. They could at least be doing something else until they're sleepy. They're, right. they're, they're now just laying in bed, ruminating about the fact that they can't fall asleep. And that only makes the situation worse. Yeah. Hmm. yeah I've heard people with uh, insomnia will try to solve it by going to bed earlier and earlier and earlier. But they just well, end up laying in bed for, you know, nine, ten hours and still not sleeping. Yeah. And, and lots of, one of the strategies we use actually to treat people with insomnia is that we actually restrict the time they are actually able to be in bed. Mm. And it, you sneak up on, you restrict the time in bed to only the time they are actually able to sleep. And once they can do that on a regular basis, then you allow them to stay a little bit longer in bed. You see how that mm. might work. Okay. Interesting. Um, any trends you see over the years? Are things changing or they, you know, sleeps the same well, as it I always was? The, I think the biggest trend in sleep these days is, we talked about it a little earlier, is the, the, the self-monitoring technology, the so-called wearable market uh, that okay. people, people, there's just new, every time you look around, there's a new app or a new device that purports to to measure all these various health parameters that, you know, their pulse, their blood pressure, their this or that, and sleep being one of them, and that some of them are kind of snake oil, and some of them actually probably have some reasonable uh, validity into what they're measuring, and the same goes for sleep devices. So there are, there is greater amount, greater number of these things that, so people will be able to better monitor their sleep than with knowledge about how well they're sleeping, they will then perhaps be better motivated to perhaps doing something about it. And these devices then, a lot of them, now they'll be able to look at the sleep pattern and they have developed then strategies to say, well, you only slept six hours tonight. Uh, this is what you should do. I mean, they'll kind of give some advice after persons established the pattern to perhaps help the person sleep more. And so I see that sort of stuff coming down the pike, uh, mm -hmm. as so that there's more monitor, self monitoring, and more the ability to self well, treat yourself for some of these things. So, um, yeah, I don't want I don't want to ask you which devices you don't like, but any of them you do like. Any devices you think that are really helpful for people? Uh, I don't have a favorite. I don't. I mean, I don't have uh, really an opinion on these. Okay. All right. Um, are people confused as to, you know, let's say they're tired, they're not sleeping well, will they tend to ask their general practitioner for help first? And or will they think, oh, I need a, a sleep doctor? Or will they not even know there is such a thing? I think that most people would go and ask their primary care doctor or primary care clinician about this. The, the hope is that the doctors are becoming more educated as well, to some extent, and that they will... Um, ask appropriate questions to green out the people that they can they need to refer to a sleep doctor versus those that they can try and help uh, within their own practice you know so so there's various types of things that you can do to identify people who have sleep apnea or narcolepsy and or that sort of thing that need to be seen by a sleep specialist and then there's other things that uh, most of the other patients perhaps can be you know, treated by just giving some better advice on the patient, uh, to the patient. The, the main problem is that most physicians now are pressed for time that they have mm. 
very little time, perhaps you've experienced it yourself to actually spend with the well, I've been told I've been told by doctors I don't have time. <laughs> yeah. There you go. I've experienced it. I mean it's un- it's unfortunate. I, I won't that's an entirely different subject that you perhaps can ask others about, but as a physician I've experienced myself. But you know, sleep disorders is is one of these issues that sometimes it actually you actually have to talk to the person for a while to get an idea of what they're doing with their life. And that takes time. And time is a commodity sometimes that the primary care doctors don't have, unfortunately. Okay. Well, speaking of which, you know, I think we're at the same situation. We're at, we're at the end of time. So what's the best way for listeners to get resources? You know, unfortunately, not everyone in the world can see you. If they are local to you, you know, where is that? And, uh, you know, how do they, how do they contact you? And if, uh, they just want more resources to learn about sleep and the effects and how to sleep better. Where can they go then? Well, um, I'm at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. We have a website. It's BrighamandWomens.org. And if they go to that website, they can find, you know, our clinic and how to get in touch with us to make an appointment. Um, we also have a website, uh, a sleep education website at www.understandingsleep.org. Dot org and it has information on sleep apnea and healthy sleep. It's uh, produced both by us physicians at Brigham and Women's and the Harvard Medical School, which Brigham and Women's is a major Harvard teaching hospital. Hmm. Well, very and good. Well, Dr. Kwan, I, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. Oh, you're quite welcome. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.